21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hi, everybody. My name is Joey Fight. I am live here in Toronto, Canada, and I have officially hijacked Andy Vasley's Run Your Life podcast. Just kidding. Here's the man himself. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to uh, my Run Your Life podcast series, and uh, very, very happy to have had Joey surprise you with that opening. Um, so Joey and I recorded a couple weeks ago, but we had some tech difficulties, so we decided rather than, uh, or I decided rather than putting that out there, I wanted to uh, record with Joey seeing as I'm in Toronto and we're face to face. So uh, Joey came down from Montreal today. So Joey, thanks a lot for taking the time to come down. And uh, for those that don't know Joey, he's going to give you a little bit of background into who he is and what he does. All right. So um, my name is Joey Fight. I'm a phys ed teacher in Montreal, Canada. I teach at St. George's School of Montreal. This is my second year teaching there, but my seventh year teaching overall. Um, I teach grades one, two, three, and six, and I absolutely love my job. Um, when I'm not teaching, I run a website called thephysicaleducator.com. Uh, maybe you've heard of it or checked it out before. Uh, it's really just a place where I, I share ideas, share resources that I built, and try and find ways where I can help uh, teachers connect with one another and uh, just engage in meaningful professional development. And uh, yeah, I'm here in Toronto and uh, having a good time with my friend Andy here. Looking forward to this. Yeah. Um, so I think I want to start off, Joey. Like, again, uh, a lot of the audience listening will, will know about you. They will have visited your website. Um, they will have seen you presented. Um, a few weeks ago, I had Jared Robinson on my podcast. And uh, one of the things I asked Jared right away and uh, was... You know, people know Jared, of course, as well, but I asked him, what is something that people don't know about you? So I want to ask you the same thing. What is something that people don't know about Joey Fight? Um, I'm pretty public in my life. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, I don't think people realize how, and this is going to sound like a total like corny answer here, um, but how important family is to me. Um... You know, as, as much as I, I try and work hard and I try to be the best teacher I can be and I try to put in as many hours as I can on the website, I also try and find a lot of time to hang out with my family. I'm recently married. I got married last summer to my, my beautiful wife, Jess. And I, am, I also live really close. I'm very close with both my brothers and both of their girlfriends as well. I actually teach with my sister-in-law. So just try and spend as much time with my family as possible, uh, getting outside, being active, enjoying the time that we have together. And... And yeah, I guess, I guess that's the big thing people don't know about me. And what about in terms of, did you always, were you always able to maintain that balance in your life, family and work, or did, did you come to the conclusion that having that balance is very important? Um, the shortest answer is, hell no. <laughs> I've not always maintained balance in my life. Uh, you know, when I graduated from school and I started the website, I was presented with a lot of opportunities which I'm so blessed to have been presented with and that I chased and that I, I want to be involved in as much as possible. Um, and what I realized is that 
you know, I was putting in so many hours in my teaching, so many hours into the website, and I can, I completely lost track of uh, how little time I was actually spending with my family, how little time I was spending with my close ones, and I lost, I lost that balance. Um, and there were some big repercussions. I went through, I went through some. I guess, I guess you could call it burnout. I'm not sure, like, what else, like, what, how else it could be kind of described. But I went through some, like, some hard times, I guess, where I was having a hard time figuring out who I was and figuring out how to get passionate about things and feel motivated and feel good about where I was in my life. Even though, like, anybody from the outside would look and be like, oh, he's, he's successful, like, he's doing good and everything. I just felt like a complete failure at times because I was just taking on too much on my plate. After um, you started the physicaleducator.com. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, not at first, but uh, after a couple months of, you know, when I first started the website, I was living at my parents. I just recently graduated. I was teaching 100% at a middle school. Um, that was about a 30-minute drive away. And I would get up every morning at 6. I would drive to work. I would get up, shower, drive to work, get to work by like 6.45, 7. Um, teach all day, get home, eat dinner. And then from 7, a, 7 p.m. till about 3 a.m., I would work on the website. And that was my life for like months. And I just thought that was normal, right? Because that's kind of what people talk about, about these like people starting websites and like the whole startup culture of like working hard and pushing yourself. And uh, what I realized is that I was completely ignoring my health and, and just got off on the, on the wrong track, I guess, um, and just lost that balance. So over the past couple of months, I've been working, past couple of months, past, couple, uh, past year, I guess, Working really hard at just finding that balance and finding what it means to be balanced and feeling healthy and feeling good and 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 putting in a an appropriate amount of projects and tasks onto my plate, I guess. And knowing when to say no. And and knowing when to say no. That's been the biggest thing, right? Because when you're when you're young and you've got all these opportunities being thrown at you and people want you to do this and people want you to do that, you don't want to say no to anything because you don't know what those opportunities are going to lead to. So you wind up saying yes to everything. But what happens is you wind up not doing a very good job at anything you're doing. So the biggest lesson for me is just being like, okay, what's real? What's one of my favorite questions? What's the work worth doing? From, from if ever you read Don Helson's book, that's what he starts it off with. What's work worth doing? And just knowing what that work is and chasing that work and doing that instead of all the little superficial things around that might seem cool at the time, but aren't really getting you any closer to what your professional goals are. Yeah, I, I think what you're describing too is that, so you, you're kind of in between generations. So my, my generation, I'm, I'm older, um, and we just had to work really hard. And if you didn't work hard, you didn't achieve anything, right? And uh, my parents, obviously, the older generation beyond me, that's all they did was work hard. You're in, be in that in-between generation of the late 20s, early 30s teachers that uh, you know still are working very hard for what they have. But the generation, uh, so the younger teachers come from uh, a generation where that's classified as being the generation that has a sense of entitlement that they just want things to come easily to them and they they really don't know the value of hard hard work and i'm not generalizing i'm just saying based on the research that the younger generation now doesn't just has that sense of entitlement and uh, that work ethic is is not there um, so i think 
a lot of people don't see the behind the scenes work that you put into developing your, your craft and your website. And you described it coming home at uh, 7 p.m. having dinner and then working till 3 a.m. And that's not just once a week or a couple no, times a month. That was endless. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what can you say, like, that was very, very hard work, but what were the, the core values that had driven you through those late hours of endless work that just kept you going and kept you driven? Yeah, I think... Okay, first of all, I want to touch on the, the idea of a sense of entitlement because a lot of people talk about millennials uh, having the sense of entitlement. And I think that part of the reason that's true is because of the fact that we, we were told, you know, graduate from high school, go to college, get a degree, and you'll get a job and you'll have a happy life. Which is total BS, right? That's not the case for anybody I know who's graduated uh, from college where you just get a job and everything's grand and you can own a home. Like, yeah. the idea of owning a home to me is so incredibly foreign given the fact that I live like in a major city. But anyways, um, but I think that what helped me uh, not fall into that trap of like, well, why isn't this happening? This was promised me. is the fact that I grew up with a father who worked his ass off all of the time. And, you know, my, my dad worked in... in in distribution, so he's a merchandiser. He'd have products flown in from different places around the world. He had to go put them out into different stores and everything. And I remember my dad calling me and my brothers in. So I have two younger brothers, um, and we would go into his warehouse when the container would show up. If it was showing up at 8 p.m. or whatever it be, and we would work the hours with them, unpacking that container, sorting the merchandise, getting it ready, picking orders, sending it back out. And we did it because we we're a family. It was all part of working hard, but. My dad never stopped. Like, even when we went home because we were tired, he was there, he was working hard. He was, he was out on the weekends working, like, doing all that. And, like, I, I picked that up because that was the model that was kind of given to me. That the only way you're going to make it through life is that you, you're going to work hard. And, you know, I think of, I think of the way that I saw, I saw my dad work when I was younger and everything. It just made me realize that, like, okay, well, if I want to achieve anything great in this life, I have to put in a ton of effort. And I think that's kind of just the, the attitude I've always used when I've approached anything, anything that has involved me trying to reach like professional or like personal goals is you have to do the work, you have to work your ass off, and you have to be willing to sacrifice certain things in order to try and reach your dreams. And I feel like that's kind of how I live my life. And I, I, honestly, of the three brothers, I think I'm the lazy one. Like, I, my, my two younger brothers are much better hustlers than I am. Uh, but still, I think I think it comes down to understanding that nothing comes easy and just working hard. And that was something that was taught to you at a, at a very yeah. young age, and I just kind of kept my whole life. And I think you've described yourself as a perfectionist at times, right? Oh yeah, and that comes from my mom. Okay, so <laughs> how do you balance? Not not balance, but you know the idea of being a perfectionist. Nothing is good enough to your own standards. So at some point, as Seth Godin says. You've got to ship it. So those of you that don't know Seth Godin, uh, amazing, uh, yeah, amazing mind. He's written 17 books on uh, excellence in education and business. But just type in Seth to Google and you'll find him. But Seth Godin basically says that perfectionists, um, sooner or later you got to ship it and you got to get it out there, right? So have you gotten better with, with your work where you realize it's not up to your standards but you know you got to get it out there? Yeah, what I've realized 
What I've realized is that you can ship an early version of an idea and build on it over time. And that there's nothing wrong with that. The internet will forgive you for it. Uh, the times that I was trying to spend nailing something right off the bat, I realized that was a lot of wasted effort because even when I send it out, it winds up not being, or I wind up feeling like it wasn't good enough and I wanted, wanted to change it later on. Uh, I think the website kind of speaks to that where like, the website's been around for five years and there have been five different versions of the website. Yeah. Um, but there's no, there's no issue with that, but there's definitely an issue with not doing something because of the fact that you can't get it perfect. I do work really hard to try and make th sure that things are, not that people are going to accept it for what it is, but that things represent represent who I am, I guess. So I don't want to put something out there that, that I'm not going to be proud of, that I can't, don't want to be associated to. So for example, you know, like if I put out like um, an infographic or a poster or some kind of visual or something like that, there are little details that some people will never ever notice, but I, I pick up on. And if I look at them and I know that I've cut corners, I know that that's me, that, that's not an attitude that I want to adopt. I don't want to adopt an attitude where I'm cutting corners. So I push myself to do that. However, it has slowed me down at times. Um, so I've definitely, I have a mug at home. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Absolutely. I have a mug at home that says, fuck it, ship it. Yeah. And whenever I'm having a hard time just putting something out there, yeah. I pour myself a beer in that mug yeah. <laughs> and I get to work and I click, I click publish and, and that's the end of that. So Joey the perfectionist, now some people, if you're a perfectionist and you bring that idea into your teaching, you can demand your, your students are, you know, you can demand the best out of your students, but in this case, like, you know, you don't require your students to produce perfect work. No. Right? So when do you put the brakes on with your teaching? I'm also very different as a teacher than as I am as like a content creator. Um, as a teacher, I try to be, I was, when I first graduated from school, I went out and you know, like, I graduated president of my phys ed association. I graduated um, with all this different experience. I graduated with like great like letters of recommendation from everybody. Uh, I was involved in like my provincial like association and whatnot. So I went out there thinking that there were a lot of expectations on me that I had to go out and I had to be great. And I went out and I was forcing myself, I was, this is perfectionist Joey, trying to make sure every lesson's perfect, everybody's learning, the assessment's up to date and all that stuff. And when I realized I was, like, I was extremely robotic in my teaching. And it drove me crazy because as a person, that's not who I am. Like, you, like, you know me, anybody who's met me has known me. Like, I'm pretty easygoing. Like, I, I like to have a good time and everything. And I'm not somebody who is overly worried about all the million little details in life. Although, that's contrary to everything I do on the internet. So when it comes to my teaching... I try to be as real with my students as possible. And what I never want my students to do is to think that they have to be perfect, that they have to live up some kind of like perfect model of a human being. So I let my students know that I'm flawed. I let them know that I can't do everything. I let them know that I don't know anything. I'm, I'm very open and honest with them about that because I want them to know that it's okay for them to feel that same way, right? I want them to know that it's okay if you don't know something or you can't do something. What's not okay is just accepting that fact. You want to work hard to try to improve on that so you can keep growing as a person. And that's the model I try to, um, I try to present to my students and encourage them to try and live up to. But like, to be honest, 
the times I feel most real aren't when I'm like up on a stage keynoting or writing a blog post or anything. The times I feel most real is when I'm hanging out with my family or when I'm with my students. Like people who see me with my students see the real Joey, see who I really am. Because that's, that's I try and be as real as possible with them in each and every lesson. Yeah. And you know me as well and you know like on my podcast a lot, a lot of what I talk about is the importance of, of building relationships with students and taking the time to get to know them and you know a lot of the research that I'm doing right now is is about that the difference between teachers who just teach methodically without really individualizing teaching and, and looking at, at the students and really understanding them um, so to me that's everything that's good teaching so I would rather focus my time and energy on building those relationships within my class than, than driving content down their throats because I know ultimately I will achieve and meet my learning targets because I know my students and I know what they need and I know the questions that I have to ask my students and I know how I have to design the lesson uh, in order to help them on their own unique journey. But when talking about your own teaching, I just want to backpedal a little bit to, to um, I guess everybody has noticed on social media in our Fazet network that you've, you've backed away. So this might be a good time to maybe talk about why you've decided to back away from, from your presence on social media and uh, to, to just kind of elaborate on that. Yeah. Um... I guess, like, honestly, it wasn't something that was, like, very intentional at first. Uh, it kind of happened because, for different reasons. First of all, I'm married now. Uh, and I always said that, like, I fully admire people like you, people like Blue Jay Bridge, people like Matt Pomeroy, like, countless others, Amanda Stanek, uh, Sarah Gitchier, all these people who have young families, who have kids and everything, and who are able to balance that along with their teaching, along with everything they're doing online. And I don't have kids, I'm, we're not at that point yet, but I admire the people who are able to find that balance because I don't know how they do it. Because I don't have kids and I'm, I'm exhausted by the end of the day. But um, regardless, uh, you know, I'm trying to think how best to say this here. I stepped away because of the fact that like, yes, I got married this summer. And it was really important to me that I spend time focusing on that marriage. And I'm not saying this, I don't think Jess is going to be listening to this podcast, but <laughs> I'm saying this because I think it's important for me to like spend time to make sure that like I'm setting up that marriage on a, on a good step. And I have a beautiful, loving wife who fully supports me. Very I mean, supportive. I've, oh my God. I've been vlogging for the last day. also knows when to remind you oh. to back away. She calls me out on my yeah. shit like nobody else. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, you know, like, the last couple of nights, I get in the vlog. I was up to, like, 1 a.m., two nights in a row, or midnight, whatever it was, uh, editing the vlog. Uh, because I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to video editing. And she no she supports me, and she's not saying anything. She's not pushing me or whatnot, telling me not to do it. Because she knows that it's part of my professional goals. It's part of what I want to be achieving. So, one of the big reasons I stepped back is because of the fact that, like, I need to find that balance to make sure that I'm spending the time that I want to be spending with my wife. Not because I don't want her to be like um, complaining about me or anything like that, but because I want to build that relationship. It's the first. It's the first time that like, you know, I'm married. It's something that's bigger than me, and I really, I really want to make sure that there's, there's one thing I knock out of the park. Like, 
80 years from now when I look back on my life, I probably won't remember like vlog number 42. Okay. But I will think a lot about my marriage, so. And you're, fam you're family oriented. You come oh. from a family oriented background. And Absolutely. That's, that's important. Absolutely. The other big reason though is this is my second year at St. George's School and I'm finally finding my footing at the school. And last year I sat down and I made a five-year plan as to how I was going to improve the quality of, or not, I don't want to say improve the quality, I want to make Phys Ed at St. George's a world-recognized program. I want people to look at what we're doing at the school and be like, yes, that's what we want to strive for. And that doesn't happen overnight, so I made a five-year plan. And I'm committed to that plan. And I want, and this year I've been working, I've been heads down, and more than anything in terms of like priorities, I want to make sure I'm nailing that. Because, and I was talking to you about this, so if any of you get a chance to check out joeyroth.com, so that's J-O-E-Y-R-O-T-H.com. Joey Roth is a, an artist who I've admired for a long time on social media. And he made this poster, and it was like this diagram where at the bottom of uh, at the, the y-axis was uh, work, and at the top was talk. And then the first, the first diagram in it is an inverted pyramid saying Charlotte, meaning that you're all talk, no work. The second one is a martyr, meaning you're all work, no talk. And the fourth is kind of like this, like, um, this prism where it's you're an equal amount of talk, equal amount of work, and the title for that one is hustle, Hustler. And I feel like over the last couple of years, I started off, I started off, I was, um, I was in that martyr stage where I was just all work, not sharing anything, just heads down doing all my stuff. But I felt like slowly but surely, like through like all the stuff that's happening, all the opportunities that have been presented to me, and talking so much about like what works in phys ed and all these things, I became a bit of charlatan where the phys ed I was talking about was better than the phys ed I was actually doing in my lessons. And that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. Because I never want to be perceived as being like full of BS. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. And it dried, drove me insane. So when I made that five-year plan and I decided that, you know, like in this first year, like building a culture of physical literacy, adopting a science-based approach, I want to make sure that I'm focused on delivering the highest quality physical education I can for my students because that's what they deserve. And that's also the kind of teacher that I want to be. So yeah, it meant stepping back from social media so I can focus on my work. Um, and the only reason why I haven't continued to engage is because I've learned so much from the online network that I, I need to go on and I need to apply to my teaching. I want to make sure I'm knocking out of the park before I go back into that conversation and start asking questions. You know, I remember you once upon a time, you told me that like, more important than getting kids to f become good problem solvers or is getting kids to be good question askers. Yeah. Getting kids to ask the right questions. And I found that like, I knew all these solutions because I'd hear people talking about them and I could, they sent me, told me something about their teaching, I could provide a solution. But I want to go put those solutions into action and then from there, figure out, okay, what are the questions I need to be asking myself to in order to keep growing? And right now, having to spend this whole year just heads down, focused on my teaching, doing everything I can to be the best teacher I can be, I'm starting to come up with those questions, and and now I'm, I'm going to be ready to kind of get back into that conversation and, and continue learning and growing from other people. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that that idea of um, what you said there, and I'm just thinking back to how you described it, but 
you're blogging about something and when you know that you're blogging in a certain way but that your teaching is not meeting what it is you're saying in the blog. I've experienced that so many times where, but that's also the act of blogging itself and you get into this role of blogging and, and it's kind of a vision that you have yet sometimes that vision is not fully implemented. Oh. Right? So you bring up a solid point and I think it's it's so important and I guess this will lead into uh, my next question which is um, and I think you know that I recorded a podcast with Ted and Carolyn Tamertziglou We're great people Yeah, wonderful and uh, Drash Drash Casey Yeah, yes. Drash Casey out of, out of UK uh, Loughborough University uh, but uh, Ash, Carolyn, uh, Ted and I spent a lot of time in Manila, Manila, Philippines back in March so I had them on my podcast um, and we had a, a really good discussion and one of the things that I asked them were, were to, uh, was to talk about the, the caveats of becoming a socially connected educator. So there are many people that are already socially connected, but there's also those striving to become socially connected. And everybody keeps talking about, you know, being a socially connected, connected educator will make you better. But, and I agree completely. Both of us have understood the oh, yeah, benefits I'm, I'm of that. I'm totally guilty of pushing that. Right. At the same time, I'm beginning to uh, just be more aware and, as I said in the podcast, to have a healthy skepticism of everything that you see on, on Twitter. So what would be both a, a kind of a, and a, you know, the benefits of being a socially connected educator, but also something I don't want to say to be aware of, but something that you need to consider also when becoming a socially connected educator. Here's the thing, you want to be a better teacher, you have to be willing to let people know where you're at in your teaching. So if you want to get online, like it's great that you're grabbing ideas from other people and using them in your teaching, that's, that's fantastic. However, if you really want to grow, you have to give people a very clear idea of what your teaching looks like. And you, have, you as an educator, have to know what it is that you're really looking uh, to improve upon and and be willing to admit that that you're not good at certain things like, I'm gonna put it out there right now okay I feel like my lesson planning is strong I feel like my understanding of backwards design is strong I feel like my use of the technology is strong I don't feel like my 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 um, my not my understanding, my application and differentiation is amazing. I don't think it's something that I feel like people look at me and be like, oh, that's great. I don't think that the quality of my feedback is always as great as I want it to be. And I also don't think that the way that I'm sharing assessment data with students and with parents is as powerful as it could be. So like, those are three areas that I really want to improve on. Um, so when I go out and I start connecting with people and I start looking for things, and that's why like, you know, I've been drawn so much to like, the work of like Sarah Gitchier Hartman, who's done a lot of work with like rubrics and stuff like that, and, or like if ever you've seen Colin Brooks's uh, original blog post on physedagogy.com, where he's talked about a systematic analysis of like like his teaching, and he has all these forms. Like that's something really interesting. Like what kind of feedback am I giving to students? What kind of students am I giving feedback to? Getting a better understanding of that and how I can broaden those kinds of areas. But all that comes from the fact that like. You, if you're going to get on social media and you want to grow as a teacher, you have to be honest about who you are as a teacher, where you're at in your teaching, in your professional development journey, 
on what specific areas you're seeking help out in. Not specific lesson plans, not specific unit plans, not like, oh, how could I teach this or, oh, how could I assess that? But real, like, real areas, be it assessment, be it planning, be it um, content knowledge, be it professional like presentation, whatever it may be. Real areas in which you can grow and improve on and as an how, educator. But, but then how can you connect with those those people that can help you improve? So yeah. Give, yeah, just give an example of how you might how a teacher might do that. So the best way to do that is to actually spend some time on social media and get a better understanding of who the leaders are, who the thought leaders are, and who the thought leaders are in specific areas. And as much as you can read up on those types of things, you're, you're better off asking questions. Social media is supposed to be social. Everybody's supposed to engage and share and ask questions. Yeah. I hear a lot of people tell me like, oh, I stalk and oh, I'm just a lurker. Um, and that's great and everybody's been there on, on different platforms, whatever it may be. But the thing is, if you want to be a part of the conversation, you need to jump in and be a part of the conversation. You need to ask questions. You need to put questions out there using the appropriate hashtags if you're on Twitter. You need to reach out to what specific... What do you think holds people back from doing that? What holds people back from doing that, in my fear. opinion, is fear. Judgment. Is fear and judgment. People are afraid of the fact that their, their teaching is not currently up to par. And they're not okay with that. What you have to understand is your professional development, that's a journey. If you know, like, I always say, like, I want to be the best teacher I can be. And if you were to break that down into, like, percentage... I'd say maybe, maybe 30, maybe 40% of the way there. I'm 30 or 40% of the way where I want to be. And to be honest, every time I go to a conference and I see master teachers and I see other teachers who are just really freaking good at what they do, that percentage drops. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh shoot, I thought I was at 40, but I'm actually at 20 because I'm not doing any of this stuff in my teaching. Um, and I, but I think the big reason people don't engage is because of the fact that they're like, well, if I start sharing my teacher, if I start asking these questions, I'm going to look silly in this, or my teacher's not going to look good, or people aren't going to appreciate that. You can't be afraid of that. If you're going to be, if you really want to grow, you have to be like, hey, here's what my teaching looks like. I need help in this, or here's what my teaching looks like. What areas do you think I need help in? But to also connect with the, the researchers, ask questions, find out. We've got uh, so many great researchers in the network that are incredibly willing to extend a helping hand and what I like about our network is now a lot of these researchers are are now not I don't want to say admitting revealing whatever that they don't have all the answers you know and they're starting to embrace the practitioner point of view more which is which is excellent you know and I want to just talk, just touch upon what you were talking about um, with wanting to improve and wanting to get better. And you know Frank Stepnowski, I had him on my show. It was a great show. Frank Stepnowski, amazing man. But Frank Stepnowski uh, used the metaphor, he's a black belt, and he used the metaphor of um, uh, karate, like I think he did karate, whatever, whatever discipline of uh, martial arts he did. But he basically said, um, use this metaphor because when you get to become a black belt, everybody thinks, oh my god, they've arrived. Kung, you're Kung Fu Panda, you've arrived. But the idea is that's just the beginning of the journey. You know, like it's just the beginning. As a white belt, you start out knowing nothing, you're innocent. And then you move through and you become a black belt, 
and and that flat belt, as he de- describes it, becomes soil, and because you're weighed down with knowledge. However, that's not the end point. You gotta. It's full circle. You're going back to the beginning to continue to to learn. So there is no one point where you become the master teacher. No, it's a constant pursuit. It's the same thing like when you graduate from college, right? You think you're gonna graduate from college? It's like cool. I'm gonna have all the skills I need to be a great teacher. And you graduate from college, like, oh shit, I don't know anything. <laughs> like, you get put it. Like yesterday, something happened at my school, and I, I can't talk about it here. But like yesterday, something happened. Was like, man, nobody ever prepared me for anything like this. Like, n- there's no way anybody could have ever prepared me for that. But it's accepting that fact, and it's being okay with it, and the fact that like, okay, this is just another challenge. You know, we had a, we had a football player, a, a player from the Montreal Alouettes, coming to the school. Picture. It was great. Uh, Kyrie's a Ibai. Um, he came in and he was talking. And one of the things he says, you know, like, when you when you come face to face with an, a big challenge or a big obstacle in life, it's not a roadblock. It's just a speed bump. And the same thing you're teaching is, like, these milestones that you think you're reaching that are an end game. They're not end games. They're just, they're just speed bumps. They're just part of the journey. It's like, okay, you reach it. Okay, that's a milestone. You're going to keep moving now. you got to constantly keep moving forward. And people don't always realize that. Like, even me, I said I want to be the best teacher I want to be. But I know I'm going to get there, and by the time I get there, teaching's going to have changed. Students are going to have changed. And you will have changed. And I will have changed. Yeah. And I'll have to keep learning and reinventing myself. Yeah. And that's what's fun. That's part of living. Like, that's what makes you feel alive, is when yeah. you're going out there and you're doing those things. And you have purpose to your life because you have a career that you're so... Um, enthralled by yeah. that you want to keep reinventing yourself absolutely um, this might be a good time to um, transition over so pre-show I had you listen to this audio clip Yeah. so I want to give a little bit of backstory into um, where I got the audio clip from so uh, the TED Radio Hour podcast amazing podcast I recommend it every podcast that, that I'm putting out there and the host of the show, Guy Raz, you can find him on Twitter, at Guy Raz, G-U-Y-R-A-Z. Uh, I contacted him. I'm totally inspired by his work. He's amazing. And the guests that he brings on and the, the themes that he discusses are amazing. And um, so I reached out and I said, you know, I'm so inspired by your work. I, I would love to be able to use some audio clips from your show and my show. He reached out to me, reached back, and gave me permission. So... Um, the audio clip that you're, you're going to hear is uh, about music and about mixing and and kind of the, the the evolution of music. But it's a metaphor for um, great teaching and where we get our ideas from and to what extent do we copy, to what extent do we create. So I'm going to have everybody listen to this now. And Joey, as you listen to this audio clip, Uh, When it's done, I want you to talk about what resonates with you the most in regards to to your own work and um, kind of the the general idea of of where we get our inspiration from. So everybody, I'm going to start the audio clip now. And the other thing about sampling, it's like reinventing something to such an extent that it becomes something new. See, 30 years ago, you had the first digital samplers. And they changed everything overnight. All of a sudden, artists could sample from anything and everything that came before them. From a snare drum, from the funky meters, from a wrong card bass line, you know, the theme to the price is right. Albums like De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising and the Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique 
looted from decades of recorded music to create these uh, sonic-layered masterpieces that were basically the Sgt. Peppers of their day. But the thing is, they were sampling those records because they heard something in that music that spoke to them that they instantly wanted to inject themselves into the narrative of that music. They heard it, they wanted to be a part of it, and all of a sudden they found themselves in possession of the technology to do so. Not much unlike the way the Delta Blues struck a chord with the Stones and the Beatles and Clapton, and they felt the need to co-op that music for the tools of their day. You know, in music, we take something that we love and we build on it. That's just how it goes. So the idea here is that a lot of songs come from other songs. And of course, this is not just true for music. It's the same for film or novels or technology. Pretty much every idea out there. Like, we sort of celebrate things that seem original, but, like, what is original? Well, what's the quote, which is the T.S. Eliot quote, isn't it? Which apparently he even stole from Picasso about, you know, genius steals great artists. Uh, good artists borrow or copy, great artists steal, yes. something like that. We all, whether we steal or we borrow, it's impossible. Even if you're telling yourself you're not doing subconsciously, you are influenced whether you like it or not. All right. So... First of all, um, let me touch on the point of the fact that, like, you know, people want to people want to connect something that resonates with them, okay? And they want something that, that goes in and reach them. And I I believe that to be true. Like, inspiration is everywhere. Whenever you're looking at everything, and I, and I like to think of myself as a creative person. Um, and I get inspired by all kinds of things. You know, like we'll be here, like we're sitting in this, like this Clooney's. Clooney's or whatever yeah. maybe wine bar and I'm looking like the fact that they have like these mirrors on here like that's a cool kind of image and like the way that they have the, the pillar set up that's that's cool those are things I might use in the future in design and everything and not really remembering necessarily where I was inspired by it um, but it's it at a subconscious level right yeah it, yeah. it, 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 it oozes cool yeah. is how I'll say it I would it. say it's it does like, yeah, yeah absolutely so it oozes cool so uh, people want to be a part of that and it's the same thing with me when I first got onto social media, all right? And I was lucky. I got, I, honestly, I, I attribute a lot of my success to the fact that I got on social media at the right time, at the right place, because not a lot of people were doing it, not a lot of people understood it. And I had been following it for a while, and I was intrigued by it, and I kind of jumped in and became a part of who I was. People want to be a part of that. And same thing with me, I wanted to be a part of that whole social media kind of like startup scene, like, oh yeah, I wanted to be able to say I started a website and all that, so I taught myself how to do those things. And I went from there, and yes, as I was designing the site, I was trying to think, okay, well, what looks good in a website? What makes a website a cool-looking website? And I wanted to create that. And I've told you in the past that part of the reason why I was so driven by that was the fact that I was so tired of websites, phys ed websites, looking like crap, right? Would you say the... Uh the, uh, if you see one more banana doing oh cartwheels with a whistle? Yeah. No, no, no. It was a banana holding a clipboard with a whistle <laughs> yeah, yeah, around okay. its neck. If I saw one more dancing gif of a banana yeah, exactly. holding a clipboard, I was going to lose my mind. Um, so no, so you, you want to go out and you want to create that. And obviously you're going to be inspired by things you're doing. But you never want to copy. Alright? And Because the thing is, it's too easy to copy. When you copy something, you're creating something that deep down you know is not your own. 
You want to go on, you want to create something that is meaningful to you, that yes, is full of inspiration from other places. So, um, it's an injustice, I believe that, that and I, I use this, this Venn diagram with my kids when I talked in movement composition, which was copy and create. To what extent are you copying and creating? It's up to you. Yeah. You, can, you can copy 90, 100% of the dance and just, just regurgitate the dance that we, we worked on, that we, we practiced. Or you can go completely opposite and create something uh, new that, that is not copied at all. But it's that idea that if you copy 80, 90, 100% of, of what you see, it's an injustice to your own creative That's it. Abilities. So what are you going to say is an injustice to your person? Because we always talk about that. We talk about plagiarism. We talk about copycats and that stuff. But really, it's an injustice to yourself. Because I honestly believe, and I've been surrounded by enough human beings to know this, that every human being has a unique perspective and every human being has their own innate artistic flair they can bring to anything. And obviously that is molded by inspiration that they've been exposed to throughout their life. But you have to go out and create, when you make something, you want it to come from deep inside of you. You want it to be something that's coming from your soul, from your mind, whatever it may be. And the act of pulling that out from inside of you, making it a physical thing or, or a thing or a digital, digital thing or a, a physical thing, whatever it may be, it, it's a powerful process. You can look back on it and be proud. And, and now, it's very rewarding. And here's the thing, when you do it right, when you're inspired by others without copying them and you create that amazing thing, be it a, a resource, be it an assessment, be it a painting, be whatever it be, and there are inspirations behind that, People enjoy the fact that they can look at that and understand those inspirations. I was talking to you earlier about like a band I like, uh, like LCD Sound System. I don't know if anybody listens to LCD Sound System. They were they were a great band. They dismantled or they retired or whatever they want to call it recently. But when you listen, when I listen to LCD Sound System, one of the things I really like is as I'm listening to them, the music almost sounds familiar because I'm recognizing so many other influential bands in their music like Talking Heads you said like right? Talking Heads yeah. like I, I love Talking Heads yeah. like I listen to Talking Heads all day and that's what's so cool about it is that there's an there's inspiration there but they're not straight up doing they're not covering Talking Heads songs they're not like like trying to replicate the Talking Heads style they're doing their own thing but you can feel those 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 inspirations within same thing with Quentin Tarantino movies right that are like are so inspired by all the movies that he watched because he used to work in a video store and he'd watch movies all day. And he was inspired by the Western movies, the spaghetti noodle movies, the, the kung fu movies, and how you see all those elements appear in his movies later on. But he pays homage to them almost in the sense that like he's hiring actors that played in those movies or he's recreating yeah. scenes that he saw there but in a completely new light. So when you're watching it and you're looking at it, it feels very familiar, but at the same time it feels really new. That's when you know that you've created something that's... that's um, representative of your whole like, creative process from from I know this sounds cliche and fluffy but from deep within yeah no but it is from yeah. deep within yeah. you know how hard it is to have a vision in your mind of something you want to build and to get that out of your mind and onto paper or onto a computer yeah that is the biggest struggle I've ever dealt with anything in my life is to be like okay how do I how do I make this so that I'm able to pull it out and put it into the physical world yeah. and it's like you can, you can ask my wife Jess I spend like hours and weekends and weeks and months sometimes just 
getting an icon right. Yeah. Because I see it in my head and it bothers me when I look at it and it's not the exact same way that I saw it in my head. But that's fun too, right? Like yeah. that's, that's, I don't that's know. That's what drives you, you know? Yeah, it's creating something. It's great. And I wasn't planning to go here, but um, I want to just uh, share a, a study with you that was done by Charles Lim. Um, did a great TED Talk. You can check out his, uh, his TED Talk. So he's a researcher and a musician from John Hopkins University. And he is captivated by creativity and where people get their creativity from. This is a man that, that plays 12 instruments perfectly, you know? So, so he, he's fascinated by this. So he uh, did this experiment, amazing experiment, where he, he says jazz musicians who improvise, that are master, masters at improvising and just playing on a dime, you know? So he got a handful of these jazz musicians and brought them to um, where he was holding the experiment and he had them sit inside of an MRI machine with a keyboard and he just said play your shit man just go in there and just play and he just looked at their brains and he knew that certain parts of the brains were gonna light up but what he found through this experiment and he, he admits it's only one experiment and he could be wrong but at least it's an angle to pursue in further studies. So the idea that um, when they're in creative flow, he's looking at their brain in the prefrontal cortex, there is, there is something happening in the prefrontal cortex. And the amazing thing is the, the part of the free, uh, prefrontal cortex that is in charge of self-monitoring, so reflection and judgment and all of these things, when these artists are, shuts down. Right, and then the the part that is expressive and exploratory completely lights up. So there's a disassociation between those two parts. So he's arguing and putting out there that you can train yourself to be able to shut down that self-judgment side on a dime to to get into your creative flow. But where, like, how do you get into your most uh, I guess your best moments of creative flow. Okay, well, first thing I want to say about creativity is that a lot of people think creativity comes easy. They think that, like, oh, I'm not creative, that's why I don't do cre create anything. That person's creative, like, it's just what they do. They just kind of, like, they just kind of make things, like, they, they create things, like, that's, that's just their thing. Creativity is about working hard. It's about trying to make something on the days where you do not feel like making something. Or it's a slog. It's about sitting down and just forcing yourself every day to create, create, create. And when you do that, when you get into that habit of making things, that's where you start losing track of like, oh, I'm doing this for this and doing this. You just get into that flow where it's like, okay, yeah, I schedule in my, in my, um, in my calendar, I, I try to do this thing, it's, I got this new journal anyways. It's I, every moment of my day is is purposeful. So I plan out every minute of my day. Every minute of my day is allocated to a different task. But one of those tasks that I allocate to my day each and every day is maker time. Where maker time is just me sitting down making things. Sometimes I have a list of things I want to try to make. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just sit down and I try and do some graphic design stuff. Sometimes I sit down and I try to record some video. I play around with lighting. Or I try to play around with audio. Or... I try and just make stuff. 
And as you do that, you figure out what works, what doesn't work, and then you try and explore, like, okay, these things kind of work, how could I do this a little bit differently? And then you, you go down this path, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it is like a preset to people where I find it really exciting, or like, I'm like, I don't know what I can necessarily make, like, even with the vlogs now, like the overlay graphics that I put on the vlogs and everything, like, it took a lot of time to figure out, and I got really excited when I figured out how to do it. And maybe other people would be like, no, it's freaking frustrating work. Why the hell would I want to do that? Yeah, which you experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But the big thing with creativity and getting into that flow is just sitting down and pushing through. Because, yes, there are days where I sit down and I stare at my computer screen for hours and don't produce anything. But I keep pushing myself, I keep pushing myself, and at some point I get in that, I get in that kind of motion and I'm moving forward and I'm making stuff. And then before I know it, <coughs> I'm in that same flow where four hours have gone by and I haven't even noticed. And Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, one of the world's best researchers into the uh, flow, describes it just as that. You lose track of all time. Oh, you know? yeah. So I'm going to throw a curveball out to you here. You didn't know we are going to do this, but Go this ahead. is just part one. So, yeah, because it's 5.06 right now. Joey and I have been invited to an amazing art gallery, um, so we're, we're, which is about 10 minutes away. So uh, we're going to uh, a friend's house for dinner. Uh, she's an amazing artist, and her husband is uh, a former Olympian and uh, does a lot of work with the men's and women's uh, Canadian beach volleyball team. So we're going to go there, Joey, for dinner, and then we're going to record part two after dinner. Amazing. Okay, so so we're gonna we're gonna call it uh, part one is uh, complete. Thanks for listening, and uh, part two will come in a couple hours, uh, but they'll be back to back. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> See you soon, everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, this is part two with who? Joey Fight. Yes, and uh, we did part one yesterday intending to finish part two last night but we had a great night last night we uh, went to my friend's place Jane Roos and her husband Conrad uh, they they have a beautiful art gallery and, and we ended up staying the night there and, and having a great time with them so we're finishing off the uh, this episode uh, downtown Young Street at Deneen uh, Coffee House um, so we're just going to pick up where we left off yesterday um, so Joey, why don't we um, why don't we go right into we we're having a discussion pre-show. So we um, sorry, we're just getting uh, settled here into this uh, coffee shop. Um, why don't we we were talking pre-show about some directions that we're going to go with uh, finishing off the episode. So I think we were on the topic of um, specific strategies. Uh, and things uh, that we're working on in our teaching. Yeah. Yeah? So why don't you just kind of go straight into some specific strategies that you've been trying to implement this year and, and things you've been reading and, and I guess overall just trying to implement in your teaching. All right. Well, the big focus, the big focus for me this year was, um, and this is part of my five-year plan, but was adopting really like a standards-based approach to like how we go about our curriculum planning and what standards-based physical education looks like in the real world. Um, you know, and I feel like we, we have had quite a bit of success with it in terms of, like, I feel like our planning's been great. I feel like 
uh, we've been reaching the outcomes that we've been trying to reach with the students. But where I'm really trying to improve is, so I start my classes off, I tell the kids the outcomes we're working on, I'm talking to them about why it's important, and then they go on. How do you do that? All right, so I, every lesson starts off with a what, why, how. So right. I've talked about that before, but what are we learning today? Why are we learning it? How will I know I've learned it? And that's on your that's on your blog. People can find that on your blog, right? Yeah, it's on the blog. Um, just look at it's what, why, how's the blog post. Um, but anyway, so we start off talking about what, and then one thing I'm trying to improve is that idea of why. And you're you're a big why guy, and you've inspired me a lot uh, uh, when it comes to that element of introducing kind of the lesson. I've used walk and talks, which is something I got from you, where I'll have students go walk around in pairs or jog around in pairs talking about why is this important what we're learning today. So for example, if we're working on defensive tactics in, um, in net and wall games, why is that important? And where I've struggled with it, you know, kids will say, well, what, it's important because it can help us be better at defense in net and wall games. Well, I want to try and tie that why into something bigger and more meaningful. And relevant. And relevant. And so we'll talk about, well, if you know how to do this and you feel and you're, you, you feel like you can play your better defense in net wall games, how does that change you as a person? And so, well, it makes us feel more confident. And if you feel more confident, what's likely to happen? It's like, well, we'll probably want to play these games more. We'll probably be active more. And trying to tie it in now. Uh, I think yesterday we touched on... Um, how we're observed at St. George's? Did we talk about that at all? My, our, how we use the Silver Strong approach? No. Okay, so it's really interesting. So the Silver Strong approach is a framework for teacher development. And what we do at the school is that at the beginning of the year, we had to create a professional goal. Um, and then we send that goal into, we have a mentor, we have our head of curriculum, we have our principal. And then you get observed by each person and you do this pre-observation form where you say, okay, here's specifically what's happening in the lesson, here's specifically what I would like you to look out for. And uh, Is this, do you know when they're going to come and observe? Or is it two, unannounced? Two of them, the, my mentor and my head of, curic uh, head of curriculum, they're, they're announced, like we set a day together. My principal's walkthrough, so she can pop in at any time. Uh, so there's no pre-observation form for that one. So they come in and they observe you. Now I was observed by, uh, my mentor is the head of um, the high school campus, so the head of secondary. And I'm actually in his role. So he taught at the elementary school for seven years. So it's really interesting hearing his perspectives and it was the first time really that I had an art ed teacher observing me. And he was really pushing for that why. So he's like, okay, so you're introducing your lesson, you're talking to the kids about the outcomes, you're saying why it's important because it's gonna help them there. But how can you tie this into the bigger idea of like lifelong health? So I've really been pushing myself in that and trying to see, tie some real like um, meaning to each and everything we're doing, even if we're doing something as simple as like learning how to skip with a mature pattern. How can we turn that into like a more meaningful like why? Uh, so yeah, so that's that's one of the big things I've been focused on is yes, using the standards-based approach, but also trying to t make it very meaningful to the students. Um, and going to reach each kid where they're at, which I'm finding a lot easier this year. Not that it's easy, it's still very difficult. Because? Because it's my second year at the school, and because I know the students better, there you go. and because yeah. I, I do as much as I can to try and be in, as involved with each kid, yeah. um, and just be a part of their life, and build that relationship, build that trust between the two of us. So. Yeah, and, and one thing comes to mind as you describe what it is you just talked about. Um, Shane Pill yes. gave a keynote speech in Hong Kong at the APEC conference in uh, November and, and it was all on uh, 
kind of game sense and, and game design. And, um, you know, Shane's a, a great researcher and he's very passionate about what he does. Um, and he, and I, and I hope I'm not um, misinterpreting this, but, you know, he believes strongly in, in skill development. And once the kids develop the skills, they become more competent and confident. What you're describing, it's a combination of the relationship building and the skills, but, but more so creating that warm environment that allows kids to have a go, right? Yeah. And then when they, they are confident to have a go and fail, then they're ultimately skill development will be a byproduct of that. And I know you work on skills and you break down skills and deconstruct skills and, and give a lot of meaning and purpose, but you know, what's if you were to describe the balance between skill development and, and creating that environment, how what would it look like in your program? Um so as much as like yes, the skill developments there and everything, I do want to make sure that the students and we we talked about this on the fundamental movement are enjoying themselves, uh, and that they feel like they're in a place where um, things are are safe. I, we're pre-show here. We're talking about like my yet poster, and how Larry McDonald, who's a somebody I, I regard Big as Mac, like, Big Mac, <laughs> yeah. as I regard as like a mentor, he taught me that uh, the power of the word yet, and how you know. It's one of the most important words we know, and it's a word that we should be using more often. So my students, they know, like, and they're like, oh, I can't do this. So when we were doing jump rope, let's say, jump rope was amazing because a lot of the students, who, even the, the athletes, were having a really hard time with jump rope at first. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not able. I'm like, you're forgetting an important word there. Yet. And then when, when, you, when you start using words like that, and, you, and we're talking about the, the, the power of positivity and the power of uh, the choice of your words, you create this environment where, yes, we're in there and we're trying to develop our skills and everything, but we're learning and we're having fun as we learn and, and we're enjoying the process of learning. Not just the outcome of, okay, yes, I can do this now, but the process of actually getting there. And you know, activities like jump rope is amazing. I used to teach juggling. I don't have juggling in my curriculum anymore. Um, but uh, Just because uh, what, I, didn't, I didn't see it as being um, the best activity suited to reach the outcomes I was working on. Okay. But that being said, now that like, so I've taught this whole year using my, my backwards design unit map um, and now I'm seeing that I was able to stay up to date and that I have a little bit of wiggle room I have room where I can plan these lessons where I can teach more uh, things that are selected uh, that I'm choosing to teach the kids as opposed to like things that I feel like I'm, I'm teaching this because I want to reach I want to reach these outcomes with the kids so I definitely think I'm going to bring juggling back because juggling for me is an amazing activity Absolutely. to teach persistence I just think of the space you have and it just seems like it would be perfect yeah. You know, because you don't have a lot of space, yeah. it, it, you know. And I've had such a, like a, um, such a great uh, experience with it in the past where like parents are emailing me and I was like, when's the juggling unit wrapping up? My kid won't stop juggling everything they're finding in the house. And yeah, kids yeah. get really into it because, again, it's it. that persistence they're not yeah. able to do it. And then when they start getting, when they start able to do it, they're starting to be able to do it. Um, they're just so proud of themselves. But they they understand that like it took a lot of hard work, it took a lot of persistence, it took a lot of being willing to be okay with failing uh, to get there. Yeah. And you know, like talking about being okay with failing, I have a poster outside my gym, and it just says in big and bold, it says "fail harder." And underneath, I wrote nothing. Nothing great was ever achieved on a first attempt. 
and maybe I can share the, I'll share the poster on Twitter or something and it's like an image of somebody sli- slipping but underneath is all the, these great things like yeah. be it like yeah, airplanes I saw that and like, poster. yeah it's great so, but you know the thing a couple of things I just want to um, emphasize something that I said before about Shane I don't want to imply that, that Shane only cares about skills that's not true he really cares about yeah. the relationships he understands all of that yeah but like but. even even when I met Dean Krillers uh, when I was in, in California Dean Dean's amazing and you you really you know, I already thought I knew a lot about physical literacy, and he just brought it like from a different perspective, and it was, it was very interesting. But he was talking about it. it's the 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 research shows that when you develop that physical competence, then you you develop that confidence. When you have that confidence, you have that motivation. When you when you're motivated, you're more likely to participate in lifelong activity. So as much as like yes, we want to we don't want to make it that it's skill and drill and just focus on skills all the time. The reality is those skills are very very important. But like we were talking about earlier, you need to tie them into this bigger picture. Like get the kids to understand the importance of developing the skills and the importance of feeling confident and how that's going to help open up doors for them where they're going to be able to engage in physical activity throughout their life. I think, you know, and this is a discussion I've had with some other teachers, and I think, for example, when I look back, you know, you played quarterback for 15 years competitively, right? I threw sidearm and I was a shorter quarterback and my coaches tried to change my technique and get me to, to throw over the top because I'd get passes blocked by the defensive lineman quite a bit which led to me having to scramble out of the pocket so that because I threw the way that I did I had to find gaps and holes so I just naturally became a scrambler and I really excelled at that but when I look back at nobody ever taught me how to throw I I learned how to throw because I fell in love with American football when I was in grade five and I always had a football in my hands and I was throwing every day. When I, so I, I, did, I didn't make any connection to learning throwing through physical education. I learned throwing because I was passionate about the game of football. When we look at the, going back to the actual time that we have with kids, uh, Dr. Aaron Beatley says, show me the evidence that says PE actually gets kids skilled. There is no evidence out there to actually say that PE gets them skilled because A, we don't have enough time. So I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it's something to reflect on as PE teachers. The amount of time we really have, what's most important in the time that we have to ensure that the kids embrace the idea that uh, they have to tap into finding something that intrinsically motivates them to be physically active for life, you know? Well, I also think, though, like when I'm teaching skills, okay, so what am I actually teaching? Obviously, yes, I'm teaching the skill, I'm teaching the kids the critical elements. But when you, when you, when you remove yourself one step away from that, I'm teaching kids how to learn a physical skill. Okay, I'm not necessarily teaching, like, like yes, in my lesson, like, I'm planning to, like, teach running or galloping or skipping or throwing or catching. But really what I want them to come away with is I want them to be able to be like, okay, yeah, like I know how to learn a new skill. I understand how to look at a skill, how to break it down, how to focus on the individual parts, so I can keep developing my confidence moving forward too. Um, Bingo. Yeah. Because you're not, exactly, what you just described is the life skill of deconstructing yeah. what it is a student wants to learn. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like when, when I teach fitness, I'm not, you know, I get really peeved when I... And I see, and I know a lot of people are going to disagree with this, where people talk about physical education and getting the nation fit. 
And like you're saying, in the time that we have, that's not going to happen. We are not going to be the solution to the obesity crisis. But what we can do is we can teach these kids to have the skills to be able to reflect on their fitness levels, take charge of it, identify areas in which you want to improve, set action plans, and implement those action plans. Now, if you can teach that to a kid, I just taught it to my grade sixes. That's something that they're going to be able to go on and implement at any point in their life, anytime that they feel like their their health is taking a step back. And that's that's what we need to that's what we need to be focused on. Because like it's like you're saying, like we don't have a lot of time. We have to ask ourselves, what's the work worth doing? Coming back to that super important question, what's worth do what's worth doing? Yeah. And how can we really focus on that? And I I think that um, again you're just you're hitting upon such a massive point. Because it, then skills are a vehicle in which you teach students how to deconstruct their learning yeah. and go step by step. And that's your backwards by design, right? Yeah. Um, one thing about backwards by, by design that's, that's getting, uh, they're getting wrapped on now by some researchers because the end product starting with that final summative assessment and those, those outcomes that you want them to be able to know and understand and do at the end of the unit and then you, you have your summative assessment uh, plan in place. Sometimes, oh, what some people are saying is that summative assessment plan is too rigid, that you're moving kids towards that final final product, that final summative assessment task, when, when true inquiry as you lead them through the unit becomes so differentiated that it's not a one-size-fits-all summative assessment task. And I used to be so focused in my teaching on creating this amazing summative assessment task but it truly was a one-size-fits-all type thing what that would look like differentiated it becomes very convoluted and and and, uh, difficult but you know I still believe in that process and I think it helps planning but I think sometimes we get a little too cemented into thinking about a one-size-fits-all type of summative assessment task yeah but see like I feel like one thing I kind of do that like I definitely use summative assessment tasks in certain units, right? However, let's say like with like the motor skill stuff, I'm just using the motor skill stuff because it's easiest to talk about. Like I, I maintain student portfolios, so each one of my kids in my Google Drive, they have a folder. In the folders, all the outcomes that we look on in the year, and then video evidence along the way, or or scans of like like assessment tools that they filled out. Now, when I had parents come in for parent-teacher interviews, I was able to show them, well, here's what your kids' catching looked like in September. Here's what it looks like now. Here's what it looked like last year because I still have their portfolio from last year so they can kind of see that progress. You know, when I teach a unit, and a good example is my net wall games unit I'm teaching right now in grade six, we did net wall games earlier in the year and I assessed the kids based on what I saw there. But now that we're doing net wall games units again, uh, looking at different outcomes, I'm still touching on the things I touched on earlier in the year. Even though, yes, it was like a summative assessment and everything, the learning continues. Like, I'm not going to not talk about the the outcomes we talked about earlier in the year, and I'm not going to not change my assessment because I'll know that unit's done. I'll look back at my grade book and be like, okay, like, where was Andy at in his offensive tactic of, like, creating space? And I, even though I'm... I'm uh, we're talking about like two hand volleying or under hand serving. I'm still going to be looking at that offensive tactic because I need to use as much opportunity as I can get to help you continue to improve. Yeah. Even though a unit is done, I'm not going to ignore those just because it's, it's yeah. Over. And I think you described um, yesterday as one of your uh, 
the weaker areas that you've defined in your own teaching is the way you give feedback to students. Yeah, so it's it's not the way I give feedback. It's the amount of feedback I give yeah. and the variety and how I get feedback to each student. That's my biggest challenge: is how do I get around to each student to make sure I'm giving them feedback that is um, efficient, effective, and like like that's tailored to that student. But you just described what you just described. Uh, tells me that you're working on that because just yeah. the fact that you're going back to earlier in the year to see where they were at with their offensive tactics so you're revisiting it and then you're drawing that forward to see where they're at now so that's all part of that feedback loop yeah. that you're working on right yeah absolutely yeah um, I want to return back to um, the, uh, the language that we use with students. Yeah. And I gave you the example of my friend Marina Geisen, amazing teacher. You can follow Marina on Twitter at Marina Geisen. Uh, I'll, I'll put it in my show notes. But she's a, a she's not teaching now. She's an administrator, but she's one of the very best that I've ever seen at. Um, being very mindful of the language that she uses with her students. So I gave you the example in the pre-show about she will not have kids ever. There is not a culture in, in her classroom of kids coming up to say, Miss Geisen, can I go to the bathroom? Or can I start this, um, this picture over again because I've messed it up? Instead, the kids come up to her and they say, Miss guys, and I intend to restart uh, to do this picture over because it's not what I want it to be. Uh, or, Miss Guys, and I intend to go to the bathroom and when I come back, continue to work on my math. Miss Guys, and I intend to go for a walk right now because I need a five minute break. I'm just confused. Such a hugely empowering way to use language because it puts. Uh, ownership and control in the students' hands. It forces them to reflect on what it is they're doing and then to, to phrase it in a way that's empowering because they ultimately are deciding what they're, what they're doing. Now, it might not work with every student, but she fosters the development of that type of language on an ongoing basis, creating that, that sustainable culture of empowering students. So, Going back to the yet thing, yeah. do you have um, kind of any other examples of things you're working on or posters you're creating with the language? Um, well, I know we were talking pre-show about how I'm trying to be more intentional about um, the language I use. So one example would be like we're we're creating like safety rules for the the gymnasium and safety rules for recess and all those types of things. And so often when we write those rules, it's don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Um, where it should be, do this, do this, where you're promoting those positive behaviors. Exactly. And, you know, words are a funny thing. We talk so much and we spend so little time, a lot of us, not everybody, but most of us spend so little time actually reflecting on the words that are coming out of our mouth and the way that we're using it. When you think of it, words and language is probably the most powerful thing that we have as human beings. Yeah. Words have changed the world. Think of like people like like how somebody declaring war on somebody, how that's changed the world. Somebody saying no to something, like how that's changed the world. And it's funny how we just use words so freely and loosely without really trying to be intentional about the way we use them. And I'm terrible at this because I get fired up about things and words just start coming out of my mouth. It's like this verbal diarrhea yeah. and, I, and I lose track of what I'm actually trying to say. But if we can be a little bit more intentional about the way we use words in order to try and shape and create positive learning environments for our students, but also positive working environments for our peers, uh, uh, positive communities that we live in, 
just by being a little bit more intentional about the way that we speak and, and our, our word selection. You know, being an, an effective communicator, especially this day and age where it's so easy to put words out there, um, it's, it's such an incredibly important skill. Yeah, and that's what Neela, all of her work right now with... Um so Neela's uh, website is mindfulandpresent.com, and she hasn't done much with it recently, but she's, she's been uh, really working on different presentations, and, and that's at the root of everything she does. So what you're describing is being mindful and present. Oh, absolutely. And, and taking the time, and it's okay to think your way through what it is you're going to say. Yes, you can plan your questions, but when you're spontaneously talking to groups of kids, to be very mindful to yeah. take pauses and breaths and as you really think about the words that are coming out of your mouth you begin to put into practice um, really using that empowering language with, with students right so for example I still see all the time kids running in the hallways of course kids are gonna run in the hallway forever in the history of school kids will run in the hallways because kids need to move but there's no running in the hallways so yeah. you hear teachers all the time shouting, stop running, where they should be saying, walking, walking is good enough, you know? Isn't it, it was like Mother Teresa who said, like, uh, she would never attend an anti-war rally, but she'd be down to go to a, a pro-peace rally. And just flipping it and, and choose, yeah. like looking at the positive side of what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, and being mindful of that. Um, so... Can we slide over to kind of, um, I always have guests on my show talk about what inspires them. Um, so I'm going to challenge you right away to, to share your inspiration and any, any, any resources or books completely outside the world of education and physical education that, that helps you draw upon striving for excellence personally and professionally. Yeah, so... I love, I love just looking at random things and being inspired by it, whatever it may be. And trying to, when I see something that I find inspiring, I try and deconstruct and be okay. What is it that I find so cool about this? And then I find ways of trying to recreate it. Um, one of the big things I look at, like, I'm obsessed with the uh, like the whole startup culture, like like the the whole Silicon Valley scene and everything. And the idea of like people being able to pick themselves up by the straps of their own boots and go out and, and achieve things, like to me I just find I find it really exciting. So I try and I try and see okay how can I bring that kind of energy and that kind of like can do attitude and bring that into my teaching. So I spend a lot of time reading up on tech news and just keeping track of like checking out different startups and that kind of stuff. Um, and I find that really inspiring. Self initiators. Yeah, self initiators and also just uh, you know like the idea of bootstrapping to me is really interesting. Like the idea of like Trying to do things without any outside help and, and, and creating something on your own, I think it's such a uh, an important um, an important quality that we want to develop in our students. What, so anyway. what Tony Robbins says, sorry to interrupt you, is, is it's not about the resources you have, but more so your resourcefulness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and taking that self-initiating approach that you just described kind of sums up who you are and who you've always been and this is why you've been so successful doing what you do is your ability to be a self-initiator and put the hard work in. Yeah. It's also like just the process of creating things to me is so sexy. It's the word I would use for yeah. it. Like the word, the word, John, like actually, like I was talking about in the last podcast, feeling something in your soul or seeing something in your head and being able to pull it out, like 
it's so hard and and to create something from that and to er, make a, a physical or digital representation of what it was to me that's just like that's just such a thrilling process and that's why when I see my students and I teach at a very artistic school and I see that the art that they're creating and the original art they're creating I'm just like that's amazing like I want to see more of that um, and even like in um, like we did a gymnastics unit in grade three and students had to create their own sequences and I said like there's no right or wrong way I'm not going to tell you what moves you have to include like I said like I want to see I want to see balances I want to see you moving in uh, balances and the things kids were coming up with that were completely like probably wouldn't win any medals at the Olympics or anything but it was fun seeing like how they thought like this is cool in my mind this is what, what would make like an awesome like a uh, sequence and going out creating but uh, I, I do a lot of reading like on that. I love seeing how like young CEOs of companies like what they're doing to try and keep themselves optimized for, for productivity and, and and also balance, right? And just seeing like the whole resurgence of like mindfulness and and meditation practices and those types of things and how physical activity is now a big part of being a successful CEO and a, a successful startup entrepreneur because you have to make sure that you're priming your body for like being able to have that energy level so you can keep pushing forward and trying to Which goes back to well-being and oh, yeah. I just want to backtrack a little bit. So Joey and I last night, I want to return back to the art gallery that we were at. And we, so my friend Jane, Jane Roos ha, has um, completely followed her passion in life which is to be an artist. And she was showing us some of the work that, that she's been commissioned to do. And in hearing Jane last night describe some of the art pieces, you could see just she was so passionate about what she was doing. But it, it just speaks volumes for that idea of what, you, what you're talking about, having that vision and then producing it completely on your own and how incredibly rewarding that is, you know? So the work that Jane's doing, you know, and she's she's intertwined it with, with charity work. So, you know, her and her husband have raised over $22 million for Canadian Olympians. But it speaks volumes for that, you know, finding your passion, pursuing your passion, but then making it have so much professional value in your life as well. So how has your passion with bootstrapping and self-initiating and, and, you know, reading up on tech news, how has that kind of... Um, what, what things have really been huge takeaway value that you apply to student? Yeah, I guess you're teaching and student learning. Um, I think the big one of the biggest lessons is the fact that you know, let's say like the website. Like I didn't know how to make a website, but I was able to go out and teach myself how to make one just by being persistent, being okay with failing. Um, and it kind of enjoying the whole like the whole process as I kind of kept stumbling forward, and that's really what what it was like. Like like I was making so many mistakes along the way, but it was fun because I knew that with every mistake I was making, I was getting closer to my goal, and I was picking up skills and, and knowledge and understandings that are helping me be a better version of myself. And I think I try and I try and bring that to my teaching, where like I want my students to enjoy that like that stumbling process as they move forward in their development of their understanding of what it means to be healthy or, or active and their, their, their physical competence and skills uh, and, and those types of things where we can laugh off the laugh off the, the, the times that we fail but also understand that like when we're making that when we're making that mistake 
we're moving forward and we're getting strong and understanding that. A good example is the other day we went geocaching and um, you know we found a cache and one of my students was like, I found it, I found it, I found it. But we were a group of like 12 students there when we were, when we were looking for it. And I was like, okay, so you found where the cache was, all right? But the, your teammates, your classmates, were looking in areas where the cash wasn't. And it was because they were looking in the places that the cash wasn't, that gave you a better idea of where it was. You know, it was looking, making the mistakes, looking in the wrong places and everything, was also informing you as to where you need to go and where you need to find it. And that's, that's kind of what I want my students to understand in terms of like, when you're making those mistakes and you're doing the wrong things, they're just giving you a better idea of what the right things are yeah. and helping you move forward. But that idea that uh, always being motivated to to be a learner. Yeah, and like not that's it, not getting. And I find I find the kids, and I don't know if it's the kids today, and I don't because I don't remember being like this when I was young. But I find they get so frustrated when they don't get it right away, whereas they should be like, I want them to enjoy that feeling. And like, yes, it's frustrating and everything, but I want them to just be aware of the fact that you're still making progress even if you're going inch by inch and not like stride by stride. You're still moving forward. That's the important thing is that you keep moving forward. You don't just give up um, and quit. And I forget, I think it was like, you remember the book, The Secret? It came yeah, out like yeah. years ago, okay. Ron so, Burn. Yeah, so there was, there was something that they talk about there about how like grass growing in, in the earth and everything else. The grass is growing and sometimes you, you, it's so hard, you're working, the grass is trying to come out of the earth and then you're like, oh, I'm just going to give up when really just like that extra little push was, was going to allow the grass to come out and, and, and flourish, I guess. That's like Ken Robinson's uh, Death Valley. Um, have you seen Ken Robinson's Death Valley talk? No. So Death Valley ha has no vegetation whatsoever. Okay. Um, I think it's in California. So for nine years, nothing grew in Death Valley. And nothing ever grows because it's a desert, more or less. But they were bombarded with rain over a course of like two or three weeks. They just got a massive dump of rain. And then suddenly a few months later, flowers started to pop up. So Death Valley was colorful for the first time in decades. And he uses that as a metaphor for student learning. That when you create this enriched uh, type of environment, learning will blossom. Um, so I think that's the, the same idea. Um, you know, it's just that it, it's so important to create the ingredients for successful learning in our programs and I'm a huge believer in that and that's that's what I what I believe in whether it be math or music or art or physical education it's creating that foundation for success right I like that I like that idea of like enriching the soil and just keeping the soil as rich as possible so that things can happen yeah even though you're not seeing them right away but you know that everything's fine-tuned everything's right all the ingredients are there we're learning to take place. That idea that you know we may not see the fruits of our labor for years. We may never yeah. see kids blossom, but we serve them best by knowing that they they will blossom one day. You know, one of my my favorite quotes, and I have it on my desk at home, is it's a Greek proverb, and it says, "Society grows rich when old men plant trees, plant seeds of trees whose shade they shall never sit in." And like that's, yeah, exactly. that's what we do as educators is that we might never see that tree, but we know that we're planting the seed and we've done everything to ensure that that tree one day will, will grow into a, a strong yeah. one. 
So going back to Jane again, I want to talk about, because um, I'm going to have you do an activity that, that she promotes through her art. Okay. So just think about a, a, a mentor yeah. uh, and three words to describe them. So uh, what Jane does uh, with her Canadian Olympic charity work is she has a, a, a mentorship initiative. So she she has people identify a mentor or mentors in their lives and then to describe them in three words and then what she does is she creates these beautiful paintings and they're not very big paintings but you know her work I'll, I'll put links to her work on you'll see what I mean but kind of abstract background um, and then she will write in using a special uh, pen she will write in the three words to describe the mentor. So, for example, my mentor was a uh, my grade 10 history teacher, amazing man. And if I think about three words to describe him, I'd say caring, compassionate, uh, and calm. So, I would tell her about him. She would create a, a painting with those three words to describe him, and then he would come to the art gallery not knowing what's going on, and then I would present him with this painting. So the paintings are expensive, they're like 500 bucks, but the idea is like 300 of it goes to a Canadian uh, Olympic Olympian. So it's an amazing initiative, uh, and I encourage all of uh, any educators listening there to think about your mentors, and if you want to give a special gift, go to Jane Roos's gallery and, and, and think about possibly doing this. But So going back to a uh, mentor in your life, who would it be, and what three words would you use to describe him? So me and my mentor um, for teaching is Mr. Gordon Oliver who was my professor at McGill. He taught um, pedagogy and games. And anybody who's involved with PHE Canada, Physical and Health Education Canada, they'll know Gordon because he was very involved for a long time there. And I think anybody I got to meet Gordon, uh, he's retired now. Anybody who got to meet Gordon, they know right away that he's a special kind of person. Three words for him would be caring. He's probably the most caring educator I've ever met in my life. And he taught me what it meant to really care about others. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Um, excellence. He was really damn good at what he did. He was a, a, a he was a master teacher through and through. And I think I'd also you say involved. He was very involved. Like I remember, like student life, he'd come talk to the students all the time at, when I was in university, and even like all the, the things that he did at the provincial level, the at the at the federal level or the federal, the national level. Um, no, he's just a very involved person. And I know he's retired and I haven't touched base with him in years and there's still to this day, there's days where like I'll be in a lesson and the lesson will be crashing and burning and I'll think like, we call him Gio Gordon Oliver and I'd be like, okay, what would Gio do here? And I'm just trying to think of like how, and I, I've, I've tried to like kind of um, replicate his kind of methods and like the kind of environment that he created and uh, I don't know, that's, that's, yeah. that'd be my mentor. Um, so let's slide over to um, a, a book or two or three that you would recommend. I feel like everybody should read The Alchemist. Uh, that's the book. The Alchemist to me, my brothers, uh, they won't listen to this, but my brothers always joke that I had the, my philosophy Joey years where I was very deep into the meaning of life and that type of stuff. But that was all sparked by The Alchemist, the idea of like... Paulo Coelho. Your, yeah, Paulo Coelho. Who was Coelho. on Tim Ferriss' podcast yeah, last I know, week, eh? I know. 
and um, you know the idea of finding your your, your personal legend uh, and following it and allowing life to kind of um, create these incredible situations for you but always keeping in mind what your real purpose is and, and keep moving and striving towards that even if it means sometimes saying no to other amazing opportunities so The Alchemist is, a, is an incredible book um, and honestly another book I would recommend and it's such a boring book <laughs> is Getting Things Done by David Allen anybody who wants to have a better idea how to like manage bigger tasks and whatnot and even the idea of breaking things down to smaller tasks, which is something I do a lot of my teaching and try and teach my kids to do. I learned that from that book. Did getting things done is like this big like productivity method, but I don't know. I, it's it's a book that whenever I hear somebody trying to start off and do things, it's like read this book. It, it actually helps you learn how to get things done. So what, what, what about Austin? Austin Cleon, yeah. Well, the books that you sent me um, show your work and uh, still like, like an artist. Uh, those are. Those are good books. Casey Neistat once uh, described the book as opening up a book and every single page was like a punch to the gut. And that's what those books are like. Because it's just like you're opening up and like, it's a short read. It'll take you like 45 minutes to read. Very all, visual too. Yeah, extremely visual. But you can literally open up any page of that book and that's exactly what it is. It'll be a punch to the gut where you're like, okay, like, yeah, like, yeah, like I that's love, something I need to I love on. his, uh, he describes the genealogy of ideas. So essentially you... He was, uh, long story short, he, he does something called newspaper blackout where he will take a newspaper article and then he will, he will, as he reads the article, he circles certain words that stand out to him and then he's left with, let's say, 10 words circled and then he will, if he can, create a sentence with those 10, so those 10 words will form some kind of meaning, right? And then he blacks out the whole, everything else, leaving just those 10 words visible. And as you read, it's very difficult. I've tried to do newspaper blackout, and I've never been able to do it. But those 10 words then form uh, a meaningful sentence. So he was accused of stealing the idea from another artist, and he got so pissed off he, he, that he decided to say, no, I got my artwork from, I did get the idea from... Uh, a guy who, okay, so this guy 20 years, 30 years ago would go into used bookstores and then he would take a book off the shelf and then he would open up the book and he, any book, and then he would read the page and then he would draw a picture over the page of what that page meant to him. So there's an image there. Then he would do page two, same thing. So you would have a book of like 180 pages with 180 pictures and then he would sell that artwork. Austin Cleon got the idea from him but Austin tailored it to his own newspaper blackout work so he proved that he didn't he was inspired yeah. but he didn't copy so the genealogy of ideas is looking at what inspires you so imagine you were to map it out so at the top of the page would be your three sources of inspiration then you go and investigate that one source of inspiration for you what inspires them so then they're inspired by these three sources and then you go to those three sources and you, you see what inspired them to do their work. So you essentially have this, this map of genealogy of, of where the ideas originated from. Really powerful. It's like we were talking about in the last part here. There's, there's a big difference between being inspired by something and copying something. And I think you know when somebody's been inspired by something. When you look at something and you can't really tell right away why it feels so familiar. But it does. 
because they were probably inspired by something that you've seen before and we we're talking about like like the LCD sound system talking heads kind of thing yeah um, whereas when you look at something it's like oh no I've seen this before and it's the same well then there's it's not so much inspiration as just replication right yeah yeah so um, I guess we're you got to catch a bus soon. And we're we're going to go home. to the Apple store, and I'm going to buy one of these mics, okay. USB mics. What USB mic is this? Uh, this is a Blue Snowball mic. It's the mic I use for all my podcasting. Yeah, um, and it's it's kind of mid range and. Yeah. Uh, it works great. Now, I, I know my own podcast, and I've been kind of quivering and going, oh, I just don't like the sound quality of my podcast. And I, I know, you know, that uh, I need to get a better mic, so that's what we're going to do next. So, anyways. Just want to just say something about gear. Uh, if anybody follows Casey Neistat on YouTube, he's an amazing YouTuber and filmmaker, and he, he always gets annoyed when people ask him what gear he used, because he says it's not about the gear, but what you do want is you want to have gear that's going to enable you to create what you need to create, that you can access when you need to access it. It's not about buying the biggest fancy things, but it's about having the things that allow you to create things the way that you want them to be created, the way that you see them in your mind and put them out there. So, Whether you know, there's it be teaching resources or Teaching whatever, resources, right? uh, podcasting gear, cameras, tech stuff, whatever it may be. You just need something that's going to be allow you to create and not get in the way. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Good. Though. So who is that again? Casey Neistat on uh, YouTube. Okay. He, he talked about something we had down. He puts out a vlog every day, super high quality vlogs, every day, has not missed one for two years now. Wow. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry. Just oh, he did one one year, and now he's on his season two of his vlog. That's huge. That's that's doing the work. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so okay, I'll put you in the hot seat to finish off uh, part two of our episode. I'm sure one day down the road we'll do a, a part three on Skype. But um, I guess your what kind of uh, last bit of advice do you want to? Share with teachers. So, if you had to just share something that's meaningful to you, what would be that one last piece of advice? Um, I think the last piece of advice just this is gonna sound terribly cliche. Work hard, make a difference. You'll never regret it. You'll never regret doing the hard work. And it's a pain in the ass sometimes, and sometimes you're gonna hate the idea that you have to do it. But just sit down and do it, and you'll be proud. Exactly. So well said, and uh, thank you, my man. It's been great recording been live great. In, live in Toronto. So everybody, <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, Joey, for coming on, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. And I hope you come back and listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bass. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.